This week of the Tech on Tap podcast, we talk blockchain and how it can be used to secure your data with Chainkit Val Berkovici. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipor. Zipor. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the studio today and with me is Dan Eyes. Dan, get off your computer. Well, I'm on the computer with you. You have a job here at the studio. Since when do I do my job? You're doing it now, but you're multitasking, but you're bad at that. I'm bad at tasking. Just tasking in general. Uh, With us today, we have uh, a familiar name and face, uh, Val Berkovici. A beloved Beloved. familiar face. That's right. So, Val, if you could enlighten us to who you are and what you do now and how to reach you. It is great to be back, guys, especially with people that know how to pronounce my last name. So, <laughs> I watch a lot of Arizona State football. So There you go. And Michael, Mike pronounces it properly as well. So. He does. So this is Val Berkovici, former uh, many things, Cloud Zara at NetApp, SolidFire CTO, Having a ton of fun, actually, in the startup world for the past few years since I've left. Spent some time in the data science area and realized I, I have more of a passion for the data than the science and founded, co-founded, I should say, Pencil Data. As we were just chatting, we have a cool API-friendly, developer-friendly service called Chainkit, which has tons of use cases, including ones we're interested in talking about here. And that's what we can dive into. Excellent. Well, just a, a first question, Val. I know the company you founded is uh, Pencil Data, but uh, the URL to learn all about the company is now uh, chainkit.com. So uh, has the company changed names? or? It's a great question. We realized that when I talk to investors a lot about funding primarily, the legal name of the company is Pencil Data, and a quick riff on why we named it that. If you remember the, the movie that was ahead of its time, was Sorkin's movie, the, the Social Network, about the origins of Facebook and the Mark Zuckerberg origin story. There's a famous tagline there that you and I know, maybe not everyone listening knows, called, uh, or, or the tagline is, the internet is written in ink. It's about the you know, proliferation of copies, and it's how it's hard to get rid of those copies. The reality, though, if you put your cybersecurity hat on, or your forensic analysis auditing hat on, is that the internet is not at all written in ink. It's actually written in pencil, invisibly erased, and rewritten many times over without most people knowing. So that's really why we named the company Pencil Data, is we kind of want to expose that, make that more transparent. But back to your question, Dan, the company name, or the product and service name that we sell to customers is really Chainkit. And so we decided, you know, we want to make our web presence and our social media presence really customer more than investor centric over time, which is why the whole website and all the cool product solution info there is chainkit.com and the about page is pencil data. Nice. Is this chain kit, that blockchain we're always talking about? I've heard a lot about this. Tell me about this. No, it's blockchain. how you it's how you make fences in Minecraft. Really? Is that how we do it? Yes and yes. You know, when we have our propeller head hats on, it is about how we apply blockchain. And I spent a lot of my time, we learned not to lead with blockchain because it gets into a, a red herring discussion around Bitcoin and, you know, drug purchasing and, and all sorts of money laundering, which is not really what enterprises like to hear about. No, they it's, don't like to hear that at all. Well, some It's don't. more about literally the opposite end of that, which is applying 
repeatable, provable, mathematically verifiable chains of custody around your apps, around your data, especially around your logs, and how that adds trust ultimately to business and how you can apply blockchain to get to that level of trust. So Val, I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but when I went to PencilData.com, there was an expired certificate. I'm just saying. <laughs> that means you use Chrome, and I haven't figured out how to do that redirect, because when you do that on Safari or Firefox, <laughs> it handles it handles the redirect properly. PencilData.com is supposed to take you to the About page. And on, on Chrome, unfortunately, for the way some reason, the way they handle certificates, the GoDaddy, if I'm going to throw them under the bus, redirect <laughs> doesn't handle certificates properly. Uh-huh. Maybe you should sell them some uh, some chain kit. Working on it. You know, they're not our top priority, but absolutely. If we want it. Cloudflare is a company I really want to partner with because there's a whole bunch Ooh. of core internet infrastructure that's not terribly secure, as you and I know, that you can apply chains of custody <laughs> around, but let's not boil that ocean. Cloudflare, that's a that's a can of worms. We're not gonna open that one. <laughs> so um, so Val, uh, tell us a little more about chain kit and what it actually does. The coolest use case we have, and that's not our origin story. We definitely have time to get to that if you're interested. But the coolest thing we do today is uncover invisible tampering. And by that, I mean when you read about any postmortem of a cybersecurity headline that we all read about, there's, a, there's always a common denominator. And that's whether through some kind of external like web server vulnerability or what I would do today is I'd be lazy, right? I'd just go on the dark web and purchase stolen credentials that happen to have administrative authority, the common denominator to every successful cyber attack is the attacker has obtained domain admin in the Windows world or just root credentials in the Linux Unix world. And when you have that really powerful authority as a professional attacker, the first thing you do is not just traipse around and start to do all, make all sorts of changes, you make yourself invisible. Use that authority to identify the installed security tools and you tamper with their state, their, their own databases and logs, and make yourself invisible so that, of course, you can act with impunity. And then you do that. You act with impunity. You're implementing your ransomware, data exfiltration, whatever it is you want to do. And a forensic audit, a deep forensic audit, will eventually catch you. But as we know, that takes months or often years to happen. Yeah. What our technology does is the moment someone has gained maliciously or somehow accidentally those administrative domain admin credentials or root credentials, and they attempt to tamper with anything. Install, you know, um, some malware, some APTs, whether it's, you know, common toolkits or whether you're actually just trying to tamper with state and change something, we detect that. So how do you keep up with what people are doing? I mean, is it, is it like a, a database of things that you keep track of and you kind of match it against that, or is it just any change in the environment at all? The first couple of quarters we went to market, in fact, I'd say honestly the first three quarters because we started selling in Q4 of last year, we've gone to market where the developer-oriented and API's first service. So Chainkit is fundamentally a set of RESTful APIs, just three right now, intentionally small, less is more, that applies the power of really any backend blockchain you want us to support. By default, we'll support Hyperledger Fabric, Sawtooth, we'll support Ethereum, uh, we have some upcoming news of VMware on their blockchain that they're going to make you know more commercially available probably at VMworld. Uh, Cisco's got some blockchain developments underway. So Samsung, you name it, will support that backend blockchain. But what we do is make it predictable, which is what enterprises want. So predictable performance at the levels you need, predictable cost. And we'll apply that blockchain as an out-of-band log. 
So developers would apply that blockchain within their code as they're continuously deploying and integrating into their production systems, this out-of-band log that is always a real system of, you know, source of truth, if you will, with regards to what happens under a maliciously you know, abused or regular app instance context. And you can compare the difference between what really happens that's on a blockchain-backed log versus what the internal representation of the state, whether it's a tampered or untampered log is. And the moment there's a delta, that's an instant high-quality alert to a security monitoring tool that was never available previously. So our, our prior service, as I mentioned, used to be an API-oriented plate. Today, we, we are about to announce, I shouldn't say today, maybe next week, we're going to announce integration with Elasticsearch Logstash in particular. So now all those logs that are aggregated in the systems like Splunk and systems like Elasticsearch, there's a plugin now that security operations teams can install and for the first time now, they can see tampering happening in those logs they're monitoring. And they can make fewer dangerous assumptions about the integrity of those logs and more concrete definitive actions taken on real tampering or just real action happening on those logs. And that's good because, I mean, if you start to see that stuff, you can take immediate corrective actions. You don't want to take corrective actions months later when you figure out what happened. Because if, let's say, you have snapshots you want to revert to, you don't want to revert a few months behind. You want to revert yeah. within an hour, right? Exactly. It's no good if you have a RPO and a snapshot of minutes, but you only know you need to invoke <coughs> it a year later, right? So yeah. knowing that you can, having the power to invoke something as powerful as snapshots and knowing when to is literally what it's all about. Time is money, often millions, if not billions of dollars in this case. So you mentioned the origin story of the company. Um, I'm going to guess you were bitten by a radioactive Bitcoin. Is that true or false? <laughs> Before that, I was bitten by a radioactive artificial intelligence. Ooh. Oh, my. And, oh my and I wanted to find out what the heck does that mean, being polite here on, on the podcast for our listeners. And uh, so I dove into a startup called Paratus AI, which has got a great vision. The, the, that startup realized even two years ago that provisioning was largely automated, tracing all the way back to the VMware days. And orchestration now, thanks to Kubernetes, is, is becoming more and more automated. But when things break, when there's misconfigurations, bugs, you know, malicious tampering, as we discussed, or God forbid, actual hardware failures, you've got the, you're back down to this, you know, deterministic, human in the loop, human centric system, non-deterministic, I should say, unpredictable human centric system for what it is we're actually going to be doing to remediate that. And that is something that Paratus AI thought could be improved on with the application of data science, specifically natural language processing telemetry, you know, from systems like ASAP to feed it all sorts of data so that it could apply all the knowledge in product manuals and best practice guides and customer support forums in bug databases and in internal, you know, um, tech support engineer, escalation engineer databases, apply all that knowledge to initially at least do a lot of grunt work in identifying root causes from apparently very disparate symptoms, but then ultimately even applying automated remediation where possible. So that was a really cool application, I thought, of machine learning and just data science in general, and that's what I wanted to learn. So I learned a lot about the whole spectrum of what a knowledge model can be, including what everyone likes to talk about, which is multi-layered neural networks. But as I take a look at that data science learning, I realized, again, my passion, as cool as the science is, and it continues to evolve and be incredibly cool, my passion's always been around the data and the data governance and data operations and engineering issues and support of data scientists are still limitless today. So that was the bug that bit me and the application of blockchain 
is how I saw a way to add value, and that's why we started Pencil Data. Awesome. So is your shirt green because you're you're radioactive? <laughs> the, the explanation is much more mundane than that. I love Upwork. In case you know you guys don't use or know Upwork, it's just this network of freelancers that's available globally. And one of the uh, freelancers I hired to make my PowerPoints look way better than I can make them look came out with a, a green and black color scheme, and we've been using that ever since. It's as simple as that. Yeah, there you go. Nice. All sorts of information you can get out of the Tech Contact podcast. Completely useful too. This is literally directly applicable. It's it's a this global economy of freelancers that I love. So this was a, a female engineer out of Malaysia, working obviously hours I didn't work. That came up with just a great PowerPoint template. Excellent. Well, there you go. You learn something new every day. Yeah, what? I didn't even know there was like a collaboration of workers in Malaysia making powerpoints. I have to do a lot this, of powerpoints. Can you send me your? your I phone? need to outsource. <laughs> I would. I would be happy to introduce you to. But the first thing to do is, you know, it's literally like a. Like a Amazon for freelancers. That's what Upwork is. So hmm. you go, you, you find the best rated freelancers for what you need to do, and you get it done. It's kind of like Fiverr. Remember, okay, you heard Fiverr. Fiverr, yeah. This yeah, is yeah. sort of a more professional. I, I thought you said Fiverr, and I was expecting an Xlex. No, no, not <laughs> Fiverr. Fiverr. So Fiverr, absolutely. Origin story on our side. Yeah, Metabusel. The podcast theme is from Fiverr. <laughs> P. Fletcher. That makes perfect sense. P. Fletcher so, yeah. ordered the podcast theme from from Fiverr. I don't know how much he paid for it because I found out a while ago that Fiverr isn't actually five dollars. It's it depends. You, you get what you pay for. Ah. <laughs> so yeah, I, Fiverr is cool too. You think of Upwork as kind of a little bit more buttoned down version of Fiverr. All right, excellent, good, good to know. So Dan, uh, you were browsing the Pencil Data. I was chain kit site, and you you had some questions. Yeah, I, I was looking particularly at the solutions and top use cases. And uh, something that I caught my eye was down at the very bottom in the tele- telematics.next. Yeah. Uh, it mentions camera frames slash motion. Would you have the ability to uh, you know verify individual frames of a video? Absolutely. This is a, so our origin story was around supporting data scientists and you know promoting mature models into production. The the terms there, by the way, are explainable AI and data reproducibility because that's the only way you can answer a customer or lawyer or regulator question as to why did the algorithm make that decision? Why did it not recognize a stop sign with graffiti on it? But the application of that was initially through a self-driving taxi use case. So I can't name the vendors, although we all know them. But as these app, you know, as self-driving taxes become closer and closer to mainstream reality, and I don't believe we're 10 years away, we're definitely give or take those five years away. Really important questions come up as you roll up your sleeves and dig into this, dig into these use cases. And unfortunately, we had that fatality in Tempe, Arizona last year with Uber and Volvo, but there's a lot of important lessons learned there. And from business driver perspective, insurance liability, not just regulatory perspective, what we learned is that what happens there is not just about the obvious things we'd want to capture the integrity of, such as the individual camera frames before and after an accident. There is all sorts of supporting LIDAR telemetry or infrared sensors. What's on the infotainment system, and especially if it's integrated with texting, is really critical for you know first responders and especially insurance claims adjusters and regulators to look at. But the subtlety of it is really important in, in place to your question, Dan, which is what happened in Tempe was that 
the software, which is quite complicated, was working correctly, according to spec, 100%. The sensors were all working correctly, but the configuration, particularly of the software sensitivity of the sensors, was what was in question. And that was back to plastic bags floating across the street like tumbleweeds in Tempe. And local residents were complaining that these Volvos now, these Uber Volvos, were causing traffic jams because they were stopping for any old thing. So what the engineers did was try and make them more human-like by driving through a plastic bag, ignoring the small objects that don't pose any harm to the vehicle. That's always a problem, itself. being more human <laughs> And it's the, it's the boiling frog problem. The engineers didn't know when they overcorrected, when they, when they detuned the motion sensitivity so far. So back to your, your question, what, for example, insurance companies want to know now is what was that configuration setting for every sensor? as well as what was a supporting you know, camera frame and LiDAR data and so forth. And it's that granularity that's needed right now to capture so that A, the insurance company really feels like they can provide real world liability and make money for these new driverless or autonomous services. But B, you've actually got to realize now that the chain of custody of that historically has been after the vehicles are towed to a garage plugged into a machine, and then finally that machine uploads all that, you know, camera data, telemetry data, and so forth, which is hours after or days after an accident. What we're doing uh, with this one particular pilot project, because it's not in production yet, didn't make the 2020 model year, we're hoping obviously soon to make the 2021 model year, is that the chain of custody for certifying the integrity of those camera frames and all that configuration information and LiDAR telemetry starts for example, when an airbag sensor deploys, right at the point of the incident, and, and that makes that chain of custody way more valuable than if it's hours later where a lot of tampering has been proven to occur. Gotcha. Yeah, I was wondering if it was uh, a technology we could we could utilize to uh, uncover like uh, deep fakes, you know, the video spoofing that we're uh, seeing so easy to do nowadays. The short answer is an absolute yes. The long answer, of course, is a bit more complicated than that because at least with our current workflow, it implies it's a, a content originator, a content author registers the integrity of their content with a system such as ours. And then later on, anyone that views it <clears throat> uses that scalable independently, you know, independently scalable API to verify the integrity of that content. But when that workflow is in place and you've got a chain of custody established, it's fairly irrefutable. Nothing is 100% hack-proof, but the ability to filter out, identify and filter out any kind of deep fake, no matter how sophisticated, becomes trivial. So, the, so this is something that the perhaps the video editing software or uh, whatever software is being used to extract the video from the from the camera onto the PC or or server or cloud, that application would have to be subscribing to the uh, chain kit. I think of it, yes, I think of it in in, in CI, CD workflows. So as that content in some kind of commercial workflow is continuously deployed, the the post-production, pre-deployment part of that workflow would need to register the integrity of particularly things that get published for external consumption. And then that consumption vehicle, it could be as easily as a browser plugin or, or anything else in between, would be doing the continuous verification of the integrity of the content. And if it doesn't verify, you're not uncertain. That's the cool thing about this. You know something's been tampered with, or if it's been verified, you know with a very high degree of confidence it's authentic. Yeah, so it sounds like something that if you are someone who is uh, making those applications that are processing this video, 
this sounds like a service that or a feature that you could really upsell uh, to your customers. This video, you don't have to worry about it being uh, overdubbed or uh, misused. You can always, you'll always be able to know that it's either real or not real. Yeah, we're collaborating with some Instagram developers, for example, where brands now have obviously their important content. They have human influencers. But as you may have read, there's now artificial influencers yeah. that are becoming part of the whole you know, Instagram lifecycle, if you will, of world. And the opportunity, not just with human influencers to, to counterfeit their content, but particularly with artificial influencers, is, is massive and very, very dangerous. So the importance of brands content authenticity becomes amplified enormously when they, for business reasons, want to use these artificial influencers. Yeah, the AI-generated influencers don't uh, swim in toxic lakes. <laughs> they don't go to Chernobyl and take <laughs> selfies. Oh, but we can extend that so far, Dan. They swim in digital toxic lakes. <laughs> digital toxic that's lakes. The, the this is like MD5 checks some on steroids, is what it sounds like. It is. You know, it harkens me back to the old Snaplock days. I was one of the product managers for applying Snaplock on the old Nearstore brand. And sure enough, you know, everything we're talking about can trace back to that and the fact that you still want immutable data and you still need to detect when people are messing with that, you know, up the stack. I understand this is a platform as a service and it makes a lot of sense to me if I'm uh, developing my application to, to run in the cloud, how I would interact with that. Uh, what if I want to run this in my data center, uh, you know, not cloudy? So it's a great question, only in that it comes up a lot, as you can imagine, because we do sell to enterprises quite often. The first thing to realize is that often you don't need to do that. What actually gets sent over the RESTful API is an anonymized token representing your identity, but not your identity itself. And that token is like giant, so it's almost impossible to reverse engineer, plus a hash of your data, not your data itself. Mm -hmm. What actually gets sent and registered, because ultimately we recommend a well-governed blockchain, which typically implies a public blockchain. So we recommend for maximum integrity, public blockchains to begin with. And if you place private information, such as anonymized ID tokens and hashed data, then it's a very safe implementation of a public blockchain. So all of the security and privacy requirements that I've encountered in my 20 years of selling enterprise are met with that approach. Having said that, there's some customers, obviously, that still want everything within their firewall, so to speak, even though that's an amorphous concept nowadays. So for those customers, we don't yet ship a licensable version of Chainkit. You have to subscribe to it. It is an API service. But the architecture, as you can imagine, is containerized. So we do have a roadmap where once we have enough customers requesting to pay for an on-prem version <laughs> of Chainkit, we will license. Money. Yeah, it's always about money. So it, it will be open source ultimately. They will be able to roll this themselves, roll their own versions. But if they want a licensed, supported version, that we will we will make that available. If it were up to me, you know, my product, my head of product and engineering will make that call. If it were up to me, it'd be version three. And we're still at version 1.x of Chainkit. So I think there's so much market opportunity to just make this easy to consume, you know, globally available service. That's what we should be tapping. So Val, are you, are you guys alone in this space? Are there competitors? Are there other providers of similar services? When you focus, I think, the lens broadly enough, there's always competition. I would say we're unique so far in how we're applying it. But the, way, the technical competitors I look at on one end 
our existing crypto token companies. So one is called Factum with an M at the end. Another one is called um, is, is called Tyrion, T-I-E-R-I-O-N, a constellation. This is a category of competitors that have basically a blockchain in front of a blockchain. So to justify their crypto token, a utility token is what they'd probably prefer for SEC guidelines nowadays, then they essentially create a blockchain to consume their token and to register integrity of, of apps, data logs, et cetera, in front of the one underlying blockchain that's trusted, such as a Bitcoin network or an Ethereum network or so forth. We eliminate that redundant layer in the middle because we don't, didn't do an ICO. We don't have a crypto token to justify the usage of. So we're raw. You go right on the blockchain of your choice. We charge US dollars presently. We'll charge you in euros if you want to consume us in Europe, et cetera. We keep it simple on the, on the currency side, if you will. We're not crypto on the currency side. The competitor that's coolest in my mind is actually the most dangerous one, but that's Amazon. So Amazon, Andy Jassy, apologized in 2017 for not having an AWS blockchain service to announce. By 2018, said we finally understand the market. It's a broad, not niche market. It's a broad enterprise requirement. Enterprises want the integrity value out of blockchain minus the confusion and complexity of implementing it. And he says, you know, the top developers inside AWS struggles to deliver that. And yes, they've got their Me Too offerings in the form of managed Ethereum and managed Hyperledger, but the innovation that turned out to be a pre-announcement so far is Quantum Ledger Database, QLDB. That's a AWS centralized authority, but cryptographically verifiable document database, JSON database, that AWS will make generally available, I presume, probably by reInvent coming up this year in 2019. And that's the model for the broad applicability of not just immutable data at the database level, but cryptographically verifiable data and the many, many use cases of that throughout an enterprise, not the least of which is payment, but the, you know, the most of which is integrity of fundamentally every database transaction. One of the first things that attendees at reInvent last year requested was, this is cool for JSON and document databases, but most of my data is on S3. I really wish I could do this on S3. Ultimately, AWS will have that available, but if it took them a year to take an existing internal service and make it externally available, it may take them longer than that. We supported that back in November of 2018 when QLDB was pre-announced, and of course, we'll continue to support any data source such as S3 and others on-prem and off-prem today. I'm trying to think about this from a, an implementation perspective. If I have all this data sitting in S3 and I come in at a later date, and implement blockchain, uh, do I need to read all that data again? In yeah, order to it, logically, it? we can only guarantee integrity or detect tampering when we're part of the beginning of that chain of custody. So it's easier for all net new data, or yes, we'd have to re-register whatever the state of the data was. We obviously can't retroactively detect tampering, but if you were to re-register your existing data, and all future data, then yes, you now have that super high confidence in the integrity of that data, or you now have the ability to detect invisible tampering on that data. Yeah. Well, the one thing we know about data in the cloud is we don't want to have to use it because that costs. Um, so the sooner you do this, the better. Yeah, depending on the model you use, and, and I forgot what we call NetApp private storage, but insert the appropriate name here, that's a, a great way to minimize those costs and, and go retroactively back and register the integrity of your data. It's Cloud Volumes on tap now, and Cloud Volume uh, Services on tap. And I don't want to get in trouble. Cloud Volume Volumes, <laughs> Cloud Flex Snap. 
insert correct name here, but yeah. I still believe in in the coolness and the value yeah. of that. So where does uh, Chainkit live? I mean, how does it run? Is it cloud resident? Is it something you install? Is it an agent? What is it? Great question. We really focused hard on you know minimal friction that that this developer experience delight for our first target audience. So you don't have to do any of that. It's literally a, a globally available service, the front end of which currently is on multiple AWS regions. The back end is on the blockchain of your choice. We have our defaults as well, obviously. Ethereum Consensus is one of our investors, so Ethereum is one of our defaults for technical reasons initially as well as financial. But uh, the point is if you want to add a chain of custody to your apps, your data, your logs, and you want to do it as quickly and easily as possible, all you got to do is know how to access the effectively api.chainkit.com slash register slash verify by getting your API key, which we kind of make front and center on our website. Do you have any trials or demos out there? We do. We got a bunch of sample code on GitHub. We're about um, to announce something fun. I don't want to steal my thunder or violate any, any NDAs, but pay attention to VMworld. And we'll be working with some uh, interesting applications, very simple but powerful applications of VMware's blockchain for security and compliance. I didn't even know VMware had a blockchain. Uh, don't Do they have it yet? Is it a virtual so, blockchain? Uh, it'll be many things, including that. It'll be based on an open source project they announced, I believe, at last year's VMworld called Project Concord. It's got some cool technology there. Uh, they're focusing it not on the cryptocurrency side, which, again, I agree with them. The enterprises care a lot less about cryptocurrency and more about cool supply chain integrity and, you know, the attestation of integrity of, of important transactions and so forth. So they've got scalability focused on that, plus a very unique feature, or, or at least, you know, relatively unique in the enterprise world, which is the ability to delete certain blogs in a logged and audited way off of the blockchain for GDPR style requirements. Uh -huh. So that's in Project Concord. And whether they started using the VMware blockchain brand more aggressively over the past few months or not, my belief, not even seeing because I don't want to know some of their release content, my belief is that at VMworld, they'll focus more on the commercial availability of VMware blockchain based on that pre-announced Concord open source technology. Hmm. Nice. Well, you mentioned data that needs to be deleted. Um, can you talk a little bit about a particular use, use case in which data is never deleted, uh, and, and that is our, our health records? Yeah. You know what? They actually are deleted. So if I remember my HIPAA well, guidelines from a seven dozen years, ago, it's life of patient plus yeah. seven years. So, yeah, I think as far as you and I are concerned. Well, as far as I'm concerned, yeah. Exactly. My, the seven years, it's forever until, as long as I am. So the seven years are there in case you come back to life. Yeah, your ghost, your ghost cares about the seven years, but you and I don't. So HIPAA is a, you know, a, a great example. And actually, if we were to generalize it a little bit more broadly, there's no such thing as a HIPAA system, right? It's a collection of systems and apps. It's a collection of systems of record. And there's processes. There's bill, business and there's regulatory processes around all that data. So more realistically, I think it's important to just think collectively about all these processes and all these apps and systems of record and realize that we need to understand what happens. You know, if nothing else, we need to understand what the workflows and data flows in particular are around all these systems of record. We need to have a way to monitor and enforce what gets added, what gets viewed, and especially what gets tampered with or deleted, particularly out of policy. 
and that you know can't be monolithic that can't be heavyweight that can't be old school pay me a million dollars up front for some shelfware that you may or may not use it's definitely got to be even if the architecture isn't cloud native we wanted to adhere to modern cloud native principles around self-service around granularity around transparency and the ability to literally just you know make it consumption based so if it adds value consume it subscribe to it this month if it doesn't add value at least from a billing cycle perspective stop consuming it and stop you know getting charged for it next month what i was most interested in was this idea that i could have a blockchain as, uh, associated with me and uh, i would therefore have uh, instantly not instantly but close enough uh, access to importability uh, of all my historical uh, health records which yeah. nowadays involves like calling many offices and having them fax things so these discussions inevitably you know if not end up involve identity and so we have strong opinions about how this maps to identity and PII PHI PCI and all sorts of other data that we care about and this is why we decided you know we're not going to boil the ocean we're obviously a seed stage startup with resource constraints but what will help this journey is making blockchain not something that's abstract or confusing or complicated but less is more simplifying at least these applications down to registering the integrity of things verifying the integrity of those things wrapping chains of custody around it and the more it's easy to integrate that kind of blockchain level integrity into the apps that either just manage our identity and uh, you know authenticate us and authorize us to do things but more importantly plugging into your dentist's office systems your 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 you know kaiser or other kind of healthcare provider offices systems your payment systems your you know entertainment systems netflix and so forth the simpler it is to plug that into those systems the more we realize that vision of being in control of our data and then authorizing these services we consume personally professionally for entertainment and otherwise to access just that portion of data so if we think about if you guys know oauth2 and how oauth in general works about every time we use our twitter identity or linkedin identity that to authorize an app to you know google identity to read certain portions of our data on those systems mm-hmm. it's really extending that concept to blockchain and and giving us that power universally and ubiquitously so it's a great vision i i wholeheartedly support and endorse it but you and i know the implementation of that Oh, yeah. is fraught with all sorts of risks and, and conflicting politics and commercial vested interests <laughs> vested interests so we're we're just trying to keep it simple if we can do what we used to call implement a simple distributed ledger an sdlt if you will and enable the integration of that simple distributed ledger with all these existing apps and systems of record the more we think we'll get there in a credible way faster than than a top-down boil the ocean approach. So you mentioned simple. So just how simple is this? It's essentially a set of APIs that that you're providing a toolkit. How comp- how complicated is this API? If your browsers ever browse to a web page starting with HTTPS, you can use us. Right? This is port except 40. on Chrome. Exactly. Except <laughs> except on Chrome. <laughs> <laughs> Except on Chrome to that one URL of the ah! URLs in the world. Thanks, Justin. But uh, you Google. Except right. for that, yeah, except for Chrome on one URL, yes, you can use us. You know, you, you get an API key with us, so you have to register to get the API key with us. You can bring your own identity. You can obviously use our own identity system, which we'd rather not manage your identity, but 
you can get authorized to have an API key on us. And at that point, just use that API key in your your RESTful workflow. So whether it's Postman or Curl or other, other kind of, you know, uh, I, I like to say you can start as, with as simple as an Excel macro. You can, you know, migrate, if you will, or evolve to, to Python and then anywhere from there. C, Go, PowerShell, hint, hint, which is something that we'll be announcing at VMworld. Nice. So, yeah. So is it safe to use an Excel macro? Is that is it secure now? <laughs> well, you have to enable them. <laughs> Whether it's safe or not, the key thing is you'll know what's happening if that macro registers. Enabled Excel macro. Uh, Chain kit tells me immediately, disable Excel macros. <laughs> <laughs> well, ironically, in, in the PowerShell world, without giving too much away, one of the things we're trying to do is, A, is the data this PowerShell script is handling, has it been tampered with? But B, has this PowerShell script itself been tampered with or not? So there's some really interesting technology that we're beginning to apply. There's lots more work to be done with Microsoft, with VMware, with Chainkit. But we, the vision should be knowing that any automation tool we're using hasn't been tampered with, and the output of that automation tool is authentic or can visibly be detected having tam- been tampered with. Yeah, when you mentioned uh, automation of IT tasks, I, I immediately thought of, about uh, Ansible playbooks. Uh-huh. Like, you know, how can you verify that the playbook that's going to going to be run is is in fact the one that uh, uh, is meant to be run? And this is where we're seeing the leverage of our technology stack. So we spent at least nine, probably closer to twelve months implementing, making it available as a globally available service and hardening our, our platform APIs. And now, for example, the Elasticsearch or the Ansible integration you're asking for, some PowerShell stuff, is what we think of effectively as a SaaS app on top of that past platform. So we haven't done Ansible integration yet, uh, but the APIs are open source. The PowerShell library I'm talking about, the Elasticsearch integration I'm talking about is open source. So we encourage a community that we're trying to develop to go ahead and leverage the power of this API and absolutely create those integrations before we do. And if they can monetize them before we do, that's great. That's what the platform's all about. So you're telling me that uh, automating something that might have been tampered with could be potentially bad? It might <laughs> cause a problem, yes. <laughs> or en- enabling silent tampering in your automation yeah. is definitely that toxic digital waste. I don't here. understand it. I automated all this ransomware into my system. <laughs> What happened? What, what could I have done differently here? Oh, I could have in, in implemented ChainKit. Exactly. And, and, you know, the headlines now are getting really interesting. If, if you know a little bit too much about how the FBI operates, you find out that anything that's perceived to have 100K or damage or below, they don't want to get involved in at the federal level. So they hope your local law enforcement can help with that, which is why <laughs> we're seeing... There, there's, there's the rub. This is why we're seeing a, a sort of headlines of an epidemic of municipalities now that don't have the resources to know what's going on here, don't have local law enforcement that knows what's going on here, that obviously are being targeted for profit by these attackers for ransomware. Is that why these ransoms are usually below 100K? That's exactly <laughs> the reason. That's the macro reason right there. My goodness. Sounds like something that could be resolved very easily. I wouldn't say that. I think identifying the problem is easy. Resolving it requires, you know, pay grades above mine, perhaps, and how you. Well, train I mean, easily in terms of like funding or like maybe FBI doesn't just kick those. Well, to the curb. you could you could uh, lessen the pool of of unlocked doors. 
Yeah. Everyone in the in the cyber industry that has way more experience than I do says cybersecurity is a people problem. So in my mind, yeah. it does come down to raising awareness and then educating at the user level and at the you know IT level what needs to be done. And once that's in place, smart people go ahead and do the right thing. Yep. As usual, humans are the problem. Mm-hmm. If only we could eliminate all humans. <laughs> We're working on it. That's what AI is all about, right? So. <laughs> you ever watched the Flight of the Concords? Yes. I love. I love. Did you ever? Because I love New Zealand. I love Flight of the Concords. You've yeah. seen the episode where they do the the humans are dead and the robots. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. It's like my favorite. We need a campaign to bring Flight of the Concords back. I think they came back for an HBO special. Yeah. We need, we need more. I want the series back. I want to go back in time. That's right. There's a lot of series I'd like to have come back. But anyway. So, uh, Dan, happy days. <clears throat> do you know what the healthcare's favorite animal is? I do not. It's the hippopotamus. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I don't remember that joke. <laughs> just made it up just now. Which is why I laughed at it. So. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's also an excellent uh, reference to Flight of the Concords. It is. The hippopotamus. Yeah. My mm-hmm. uh, rhymes are bottomless. <laughs> Anyway. Now you got to work in a business. It's business time, you know. I'm going to be splicing in some stuff here. Yeah. Oh. yeah. So Val, uh, you were uh, well known amongst your friends here at NetApp of also always conveniently having a customer meeting wherever F1 was happened to be racing. Uh, so are you in fact uh, in Silverstone right now? Uh, sadly, I, I am not, and, and even more sadly, I have never been. Oh. So, so the way uh, NetApp's business turned out, it seemed like whether it was Austin, I guess, in November or Singapore in September were like optimal opportunities. For some reason, Montreal wasn't, but the others were optimal opportunities to just work in the passion for Formula One into business. And, and that's why I spent some time at those Grand Prix courtesy of NetApp, which I'll be eternally grateful for. But I am not at Silverstone, uh, although if we remember what happened uh, you know, the, just recently, so it was the Austrian Grand Prix, right? Only two weeks ago, a fake press release was issued oh, yeah. by some ne'er-do-well <laughs> because it took the FIA three or four hours to just figure out what to announce as, you know, with regards to a penalty or not for the winner of the race. And so that always, of course, the way my brain is wired, got me to thinking the FIA, if not Formula One, needs to be a chain kit customer so that when they issue press releases, there's no, no uncertainty with regards to their authenticity. And BBC reporters, like they did, don't go off reporting on false news, fake news. So is the season over and, and is Mercedes cheating? <laughs> Great questions. How much time do we have left? So yeah, the, the season's pretty much over. There would have to be the, the epic cratering of all craterings by the team and Lewis to not walk away pretty much with this season, which is sad for the sport. You know, I, I do happen to be a Lewis fan, but no, I don't. I don't want anyone to win this way. Uh, but there's always, you know, I'm an eternal optimist. So I, I believe rule changes in the next year, and especially I think 2021, will have to level off that playing field. Uh, the new owners, Liberty Media, they're American-based. They know it's not good for the sport to just have one team, one driver walk away with it. And between, you know, the exciting things that Verstappen does as a driver, and uh, I'm a Charles Leclerc fan as well on the Ferrari side, a Vettel fan too, you know, he'll find his groove. Uh, I'm optimistic for the future, but this season is all about the procession now. What's changing? Is it uh, the 2020 season is when the uh, new tires 
come in? Tires are a big, big deal. I think tires clearly got messed up this year because they're just way too predictable. I personally like the blowing up tires. I don't think that was a massive, you know, danger threat. It's exciting. It adds real elements of uncertainty, real danger. I'm a Merkin, so we watch NASCAR for the wrecks. There you go. There you go. All you want, you want basically non-fatal events, right? Non-fatal crashes to occur, and that makes the sport interesting. So a lot more rain at these races would be cool. A lot more safety cars to add a bit of variability. And the, the, maybe the, I think one of the changes they're discussing is the need to have more than one pit stop, right? Today, the rules say you have to have at least one pit stop to change tires to a different tire compound. They should do something to tweak it to, to force a second change for whatever reason. And, uh, and that is maybe the easiest thing they can do. I think by 2021, they're going to make big changes to the engine rules and the budgets around engines. And it's all about making them more powerful oh, and more efficient. They're not going to make those run, run four cylinders, are they? <laughs> they might. But as long as they make it affordable for the lower end teams to deliver competitive engines and make the, the cars more competitive overall, then that, that's what the sport needs. I think they should let the competitors, like the, the, your opponents, pick your tires for one of the one of the pit stops <laughs> you know we should be watching formula e more the formula e doesn't have all the glamour yet or formula one but they are a very progressive sport where there's literally audience participation and i think it's called fan boost oh the popular drivers <laughs> literally get an, a virtual electronic boost to their horsepower or the equivalent of their horsepower oh, on their electric motors and they can pass pass people so that that's innovation right there that's cool and and i think formula one We'll have to figure out how to make that sort of cool by old school rules and, and work it into the sport. Yeah, I don't know if that's a good idea, man. <laughs> well, it's like fun, I though. Said, it's, it's innovation, but there's ways to add more audience participation, ways to make it more unpredictable and, and exciting. You want to be there, not, you know, the first turn of the first lap is where most races are decided today in Formula One. And, and that's not good for the sport. You want to be on the edge of your seat until the last corner of the last lap on that track to know what's going to happen. And when the sport gets there, it's, you know, there's no stopping it. Yeah. But now not only do you have to be a great driver, you have to be attractive. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like Roman gladiators, right? The crowd, the crowd cheers and the emperor either puts thumbs up Just or thumbs never down. Take, never take your helmet off. Yeah. Like the Stig. Have you looked at the average formula one driver? They're already very Metro. They're already very attractive. So uh, I don't think they have a problem there. I can never see them. They're really short. Exactly. They're like jockeys. jockeys. They're, like They're jockeys. literally jockeys. So, yeah. You know what? Not all of them. Who was it? Uh, Weber was about six feet tall. Hulkenberg is a pretty big guy, the Hulk. So well, he's got to be. They're not big. all short, but yeah, the shorter, the lighter, the better for obvious Newtonian physical reasons. Nice. Excellent. Well, thank you, Val. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Val, and telling us all about pencil data and chain kit. Uh, again, if we wanted to reach you, how do we do that? I am ubiquitously online. As long as Twitter's up, I'll be on at uh, at ValBoo, ValB00. And there is a chain kit handle if you want to follow product information as well. And love to engage there, and we can connect from there. Lately, Twitter has not been up. <laughs> it's been off a little bit lately. Uh, and Dan, how do we reach you? Uh, at Dan Isaacs on, on the Twitter. Val is, follows me. So, he does? Yeah. Wow. I do. Impressive. I don't often have a follower on the, on the podcast. Well, I mean, you've got to say interesting things. <laughs> Literally, I, I call my Twitter followers every few months, and it's like, if you haven't tweeted in the six months, you're gone. But as Ooh. long as you're alive twice a year and you're interesting, I'll follow you. Hey, there we go. Wait a minute. Hey, you don't follow me. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. 
let's blame it on the algorithms. If oh. I don't follow you, then we'll get there. <laughs> sure, we I think, I, before I think, we go live. I think we do. I think you do. It's fine. I'm just joking. Why wouldn't you follow me? I'm beautiful. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Val. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at NetUp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Val Berkovici for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. They call me the hip hop apotamus. Flows that glow like phosphorus. Popping off the top of this esophagus. Rocking this metropolis. I'm not a large water dwelling mammal. Where did you get that preposterous hypothesis? Did Steve tell you that perchance? Steve.